Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here and professor of Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our professor of systematic theology, Grace Utanto, our professor of Old Testament, Peter Lee, professor of New Testament, Paul Jean, professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, and academic dean. And we have a special guest today, and that is our professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary at RTS Charlotte, D. Blair Smith. Hey, Blair, how are you doing? Hello, good to be with you guys. Blair is a uh, is a good friend and colleague. Um, Blair and I actually, well, Blair was a pastor at a church that my family attended and where I got to teach from time to time here up in Washington, D.C. And, and so we got to know each other up there. And uh, and actually still, Blair, I stand in for you sometimes. If you didn't know, I, I actually just a couple of years ago, I was teaching in this pastor's class that's held up at our church, our former church, and uh, uh, someone came up afterwards and said, hey, listen, I just really appreciate your teaching and just all you're putting into it. And I said, well, hey, no, thanks. I appreciate you saying something. And then he said, so, I mean, Blair, you've been such a ministry to me and my wife over the last six years. (laughs) And I realized... I was getting credit for work that I hadn't done. So apparently there's a species of person out there who thinks Blair and I look alike. Um, And uh, so Blair, I continue to benefit from your ministry even after you've left. Um, But Blair has been teaching down at RTS Charlotte now for a couple of years. He um, is really kind of making his name in the world of patristics and early Christian theology uh, he did um, he did his THM at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, the title of that work was Athanasius's Trinitarian Theology of Redemption with Special Reference to the Holy Spirit. So you can already see an early interest in Trinitarian theology. He went on to complete his PhD under Lewis Ayers. The title of that is The Fatherhood of God in Fourth Century Pro-Nicene Trinitarian Theology. And um, that is out, we hope to be published soon so that we can all require it of our students here at RTS. But we wanna go ahead and get this conversation started on this idea of, particularly around this idea of the fatherhood of God and, and the role of the fatherhood of God. We hear a lot about sonship, we hear a lot about the theology of the son, and yet probably less these days about the fatherhood of God. So, so let me start off with that, Blair. What, what brought you to this topic of study? What, what kind of made this of interest to you? And um, sort of what, maybe in answering that to you, you can give us a little bit of your background as a professor of theology. What kind of brought you into this field? Sure. Thanks, Scott. And uh, I do remember being mistaken for you quite a few times at Fourth Pres, uh, as you were mistaken for me. And uh, I've treasured your friendship ever since we met in, I think, late 2016, no, 2006, not 2016, and uh, you and your wife and children had Lisa and me over as we came to D.C., and we got to overlap for a little bit there before you uh, carried on to RTS Orlando and church work in the Carolinas, and uh, I have to say, when I left that church, it, it really made me uh, feel good that you were taking over many of my teaching responsibilities in that Sunday school, even if some people didn't realize I had left. Uh, 
so a little bit about my background that got me into the study of the fathers and fatherhood. I actually attended seminary here in Charlotte. So I went to RTS Charlotte from 99 to 02. Two of the professors I studied under in, in theology that were very formative for me were uh, Drs. Douglas Kelly and Harold O.J. Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown was, he just had a prodigious knowledge of church history and theology. And so he, he very much exposed me to the fathers uh, in conversations and in teaching in, in many different ways. But in a more focused way, uh, Dr. Kelly taught a class on patristic theology. He taught a class on Trinitarian theology. And then in all my core systematic courses I took, he, he wove in a lot of study of the Father, study of the Trinity. And I really benefited from that in my interests. Uh, here is the core doctrine of our faith, the doctrine of God, uh, the doctrine of Trinity. And having grown up in the church, I certainly heard about it, but I, it had not been presented to me in all its beauty and richness uh, both in who God is and who God is for us uh, in the gospel. And so I guess through exposure during that time, I just had an increasing desire to, to study uh, the church fathers, to study uh, the Trinity. Dr. Kelly was a student of T.F. Torrance's at, at Edinburgh. And as a consequence, we read a lot of T.F. Torrance on the Trinity while, while I was in seminary. And if anyone's aware of Torrance's work, you'll know that he was very conversant with the fathers weaving in references, dialogue with the fathers, whether he was doing direct sort of more patristic work or whether he was doing work on the Trinity itself. And because uh, I was simultaneously reading the fathers and reading a lot of Torrance, I, I, I became interested in the Trinity and in the fathers. But at the same time, I, I was starting to have a lot of questions over certain interpretations of the fathers of the Trinity uh, that was coming to me by way of Torrance. And so with that as background, I took those questions uh, to my THM. You mentioned I did a THM on Athanasius and uh, the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of, of redemption. And I would say there during my THM, not only was I getting tools uh, to read the fathers uh, in the originals through further study in Greek and Latin, but I was studying the fathers more deeply in, the, in, the, in their texts themselves. And I was bringing to, the, to those texts some of the questions that were coming out of Torrance and coming out of other 20th century systematicians, where they see, seem to have these very uh, distinct interpretive grids that they were putting on uh, their reading of the fathers. And uh, I was trying to weigh the, the good of those interpretive grids as I was reading the fathers themselves. And then, as you, as you mentioned, I uh, eventually went on to do my Ph.D. in studying the fathers, particularly on the on the question of the fatherhood of God. Now, to kind of go back, why did I get interested in that particular theological area of the fathers and of the Trinity? I think there's really a twofold answer to that. One is connected to the theological questions in and around the Trinity that T.F. Torrance and other 20th century theologians were asking. Um, so those were, you could say, Trinitarian and theological questions of how the Father relates to the Son and the Spirit. How do we conceive of the Godhead and the order of the Trinity? Uh, but I think also to go back to my time at RTS Charlotte, I, I did very much uh, take to the doctrine of adoption. If I had heard about the doctrine of Trinity before, 
and not really had it presented to me in its richness and its relevance. I think the same with the doctrine of adoption. Certainly I'd heard from Galatians and Romans of the doctrine of adoption, but I, it had not been presented to me in its richness of how I understand myself in relation to God, how I understand the nature of salvation and the nature of Christian life, and how the doctrine of adoption really presents to us uh, the picture of what is our eternal identity and in in, in life with God. And so I think in seminary, learning more about the doctrine of adoption, I, I very much became appreciative of the fatherhood of God in the context of a, a salvation and uh, the Christian life. So you can see there, there's doctrine of the fatherhood of God in the Trinity itself and doctrine of the fatherhood of God in relation to us in salvation. These are not unrelated at all, uh, but they are sort of distinct areas in theology of, of interest. Um, and my dissertation, while primarily focused on the question of the fatherhood of God within the Trinity itself, so therefore his relation to the Son and the Spirit, as you study the church fathers, they quickly relate that, though, to how we understand the nature of our salvation as well. So what are we missing in the church today by perhaps not focusing on this doctrine of the fatherhood of God? I mean, I love, I love how you brought that in. That was very kind of sort of Calvinistic in epistemology and the idea of thinking about, I can't help but think about the son without thinking about the father. And once I think about the father, it makes me go back to thinking about what it means to be son and in the son, right? So there's this reciprocity in these doctrines as we would expect. What are we missing in the church? Because I don't feel like we hear as much about God's fatherhood. So what are we missing in the church by not having that? Yeah, good question. And I mean, maybe I can relate that again to these two categories. Trinitarianly, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about the son and the spirit and Aquinas, I think it was said, you know, said why, why, is, why is there not more discussion about the father theologically? And it's because, as he saw it, he was not sent, right? So this, the son was sent in the incarnation, the spirit was sent in Pentecost, and much of the New Testament is taken up with a focus on the sentness of the son and the spirit. And so theologically, you know, we don't give as much attention uh, in light of those economic, those theological economic realities. Nonetheless, as we gaze upon the Trinity, as we worship God for who he is in the fullness of Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit, I think we lose the robustness and richness of our Trinitarian faith if our focus is only on the Son and Spirit and we don't understand uh, the Father as well. More could be said about that, but to, to fill it out with what else is lost, I think the richness of our identity of being members of the household of God being in a, in a family, a divine family, of, of understanding what it means to pray our Father, or what it means to live out the Christian life where uh, our Father loves us, protects us, and disciplines us. If we do not give attention to the fatherhood of God and the economy of grace, uh, we, we lose so much of what is our identity, how God shapes us as sons and daughters, and if I could put it this way, there's something lost of eschatology, because, you know, if you read Ephesians 1, for example, that rich passage of, of Paul's, where he is bringing our salvation into the context of God's eternal plan and putting it all in a beautiful Trinitarian frame there, he talks about predestination, of course, 
but he talks about how we've been predestined for a particular purpose, for our adoption, for our status as sons and daughters. And I think, you know, evangelicals and reformed evangelicals, we've rightly been concerned with doctrines like justification and, and sanctification, and we need to attend to those to understand the nature of our salvation. But sometimes we miss what is this all for? It's for our status of being sons and daughters, being members of a household of God, and being able to call upon in prayer our Father. And it's those images and realities which are actually speak of what's our eternal, what will be our eternal reality. We leave, if I could put it this way, justification behind. Uh, we even leave sanctification behind in glorification. We will never leave behind the fact that we're sons and daughters and, and we have a father. That's a great insight, Blair. And you mentioned as well that in the 20th century, there were certain interpretive grids that were put on the church fathers. Uh, and I remember reading T.F. Torrance on the church fathers and thinking to myself, wow, he's really reading them in a very Bardian way. It's almost like they're precursors to the theology of Karl Barth. Could you maybe speak into what those interpretive, interpretive grids were? maybe not only about Torrance and also other folks, but also how we can recover the Church Fathers from those interpretive grids and let them speak for themselves. With Torrance in particular, he was very a very strong reader and um, a vigorous reader. And, and one of the things that I appreciate about Torrance is he owns everything, right? And, and he's very vigorous and very confident and a, and a very impressive intellect. But in that strength, he would bring the strength of these particular grids uh, as he read the fathers. And one of the moves that he often made that increasingly made me uncomfortable as I was reading the fathers was in a sense to set the fathers uh, against one another on the question of who was more Nicene and who was less Nicene. And in his theological interpretive grid, his great hero was Athanasius. If anyone reads Torrance, you, you will pick that up very, very quickly. But as a consequence of Athanasius being his great hero, he will begin to play Athanasius against other fathers so that Athanasius is the more pure Nicene one and the likes of, say, Basel is, is less Nicene because he sees in them a certain incipient uh, hierarchy between the father and the son. Whereas in uh, Athanasius, and as he'll put it in late Gregory of Nazianzus, he has this scheme where there's a late Gregory of Nazianzus and an early Gregory of Nazianzus. That late Gregory of Nazianzus is more pure because he becomes more Athanasian. And one of the things that he is doing there is he's wanting to see everything through a certain mutuality between the father and the son. So any speaking of taxes in order uh, or priority of the father even maybe a certain attention to the father, which is trying to theologically, as careful as this discussion needs to be, draw the distinctiveness of the father, uh, it makes him theologically uncomfortable. And so he will say that that is moving away from Nicaea, and what we need in Nicaea is a pure trinity and unity and unity and trinity um, that you can see in the likes of Athanasius. In addition to T.F. Torrance, you, you have other readers of the 20th century. On the feminist side, you know, you have the likes of Catherine Lacugna, and, and they bring to the discussion of the fathers uh, this question of if there's any hierarchy or th is there any perceived social arrangement in the Trinity, which if we were to bring into the human realm, 
uh, becomes hierarchical and then problematic. And some of their interpretations of, of the fathers are, are very concerned over questions of social arrangement. And so they're interpreting uh, the, the Trinity accordingly. And if I could give one other interpretive grid without getting too detailed, there's a general interpretive grid that was bequeathed to a lot of 20th century systematicians out of, out of a, a French writer who became, his um, schema became very popular, which set Eastern fathers over and against Western fathers and vice versa, that there were these two distinct ways of reading the Trinity. One was more concerned with the three and the, that's the, the Eastern side and the other was concerned more with the one, and this is called the De Regnon thesis. And uh, so a lot of 20th century systematicians, readers of the fathers brought this grid that there has to be this Western way of doing things and this Eastern way of doing things. And then they read the fathers accordingly. And the more I read the fathers, uh, certainly you have Latin writers and you have Greek writers and you have certain theological accents that emerge out of the background of East and West. Nonetheless, if indeed we're holding together a common faith uh, in God, the Trinity across East and West, these differences are not going to be so distinct that there's almost two different ways of doing theology. And as I was reading the Fathers, I simply wasn't seeing these distinct walls between East and West. And the way that that kind of cashed out in the 20th century, especially late 20th century, as people were trying to find in the Trinity sort of a social program, put it that way. They're much more drawn to Eastern writers where there seemed to be, according to this thesis, more of an appreciation for the threeness of the Trinity and how those three relate. So those are some, some interpretive grids that uh, I was reading about that I was uncomfortable with as I was reading more of the primary sources. And I think that gets to your second question, Gray, is that one answer to this is reading primary sources. One thing I was very appreciative of uh, with my doctoral advisor, Lewis Ayers, is primary source-driven scholarship. You know, I think this has been one of the great things that you've seen in Richard Muller's work. I know there's disagreements and questions about, you know, Richard Muller's readings of this or that. But as a whole, as he has taken on the Calvinist versus Calvinist interpretive grid, I think we have these interpretive grids where we say you set Calvin against those who came after him. And one of the ways of overturning that grid, uh, as Richard Muller and others have done, is by actually reading the text themselves and seeing if that holds up to that interpretive grid. Well, some of these interpretive grids that we find in the 20th century, the answer to them is go read the fathers themselves and carefully weigh the text. And uh, if I could put it, you know, how we're to read scripture, interpret scripture with scripture, you know, read the fathers together not through 20th or 21st century lenses and, and let that drive your scholarship. It's amazing to me how much that parallels kind of Bavinkian scholarship as well, where you have the Dutch readers kind of reading a progressive Bavink and then maybe English speaking readers reading an Orthodox Bavink and then ultimately what emerged with this two Bavink thesis where you had yeah. to pick and choose between Orthodox or modern sides. And so that's a really refreshing uh, turning point, Blair. Thanks. So I was talking with my kids this morning. They were really interested in who we were having on the podcast. I don't know why, but they they were very interested. And I said, you were in, into patristics and they tried to use their Latin knowledge to figure out what they, they meant. And they, they came up with the conclusion that you are basically kind of like 
the Christian backstory. That's what you study. The story of the church before, you know, you know, the backstory of the church. So one of the things that I struggle with in talking to students and trying to get them interested in patristics is kind of like the value of it. Where's the, you know, why shouldn't I just focus on the conversation now? Why do I need to look at patristics? Are, haven't we just kind of moved on in the story? And, and patristics then is just kind of like backstory. Give us a, you know, a five-minute speech about why study the patristic patristics? What's the value here? How can pastors in the pulpit to academics studying New Testament, how can we benefit from these scholars that have gone before? Yeah, great, great question. Let me start with, with, with maybe the most obvious point is that Christians never move on from God. <laughs> we never move on from who he is. Uh, this is our e e enduring fascination, uh, which, which we get to glimpse at this side of glory and which will be our fascination for all of eternity. And uh, I would say one of the glories of the fathers is that by and large, they uh, were obsessed with God. And as I like to put it, the reformed idea of big God theology. I don't know who coined that, uh, that we in the reformed world are about a big God theology. I know I've heard our chancellor, Ligon Duncan, say that, and I'm sure many before have said that. Well, the, the, the church fathers had a big God theology. Now, they might have articulated it a little bit differently than we often do in the reformed world, but they, they had a God-entranced vision to use, I think, uh, that, that's John Piper. Uh, they were they were just enthralled with God. And so one value of reading the fathers is getting into that room with them where they are enthralled with God and to see how they saw the beauty of God. So because they they were so enthralled with God and spent so much time reflecting on that and writing on that, uh, they are a value just for that sheer fact alone. I think another reason is the core creeds, uh, and maybe we'll talk about the creeds uh, here of eventually, which come out of this era, in particular, if we're talking about the Nicene Creed in the fourth century or Chalcedon in, in the fifth century, these emerge from the theological vision uh, of, of the church fathers. And as much as we continue to recite these as, as a church to remind ourselves of who God is and who Christ is, um, you, you said your children were interested maybe in me as being a, a curator of the backstory, <laughs> um, to know the backstory of these creeds. What, what were the theological discussions uh, that took place behind these creeds is very important, I think, to understanding why these creeds are so important to continue to hold on to and to continue to articulate and confess in our churches. So the fathers are very valuable for that back, backstory. Another reason that the, the fathers are so valuable, more generally theological, theologically, I think, is we have this habit, and it, and it really starts, unfortunately, in our theological curriculum of uh, dividing up the various theological loci. Now, there are good reasons we do that in the theological uh, curriculum. I'm not poo-pooing that entirely. There are uh, logistical and pedagogical reasons for why we have systematic theology one, two, three, et cetera. What can be lost, though, is the integration between the various loci as, as we do that. And one of the things I really appreciate about reading the fathers 
is that their theological vision does not divide up these various areas of theology, but is continually bringing them together. And the best of them are doing so in relation to God. There's, you know, what is theology question uh, that many great theologians and Gray can attest to this, like Bavink and Webster have asked in the study of theology is God and all things in relation to God as revealed by God in his word. Well, the, the fathers were particularly adept of studying God and how all things relate to God, in particular, our doctrine of salvation. And so whenever you find the church fathers talking about God on one side of their mouth, they're often very quickly on the other side of their mouth relating that to such doctrines, as I mentioned earlier with Scott, like the doctrine of adoption. And so for theological integration reasons, they can be very, very helpful. Uh, to your discipline and others on this uh, call's disciplines with regard to scripture itself, I, I think studying the fathers for their exegetical moves and learning how their exegetical moves related to their theological conclusions is, is very helpful. Because, you know, if you studied exegesis of an Athanasius, a Hillary, a Basel, one of the things that you will see them doing really rather beautifully is reading scripture with scripture, which of course is a sola scriptura principle that we hold, we hold dear that uh, as we read the scriptures, we need to do so not in isolation, but reading scripture with scripture. And this for them was of the utmost theological importance because what was often being done by their theological opponents, um, if you take Athanasius, for example, as, as he is writing against Arians. Uh, now, now these people would not always have understood themselves as Arians, but those who in some way were seeking to lessen the son in relation to the father ontologically. One of his critiques of them is that they are taking a text here, they're taking a text here, they're focusing in on those texts in particular, say a John 14, 28, and subordinating the son to the father. And Athanasius will come to that and say, okay, okay, that's what that verse says, but we need to read that verse in light of the whole canon. And, and then he will demonstrate how, how that is done. And so you find that over and over in exegetical moves of, of the fathers is their skill in reading scripture with scripture, their skill of rubbing different texts up together and seeing kind of what results. And it's, it's a really powerful thing to see in action now, some of the moves they make, you know, may make us uncomfortable, and we certainly need to continue to critique the fathers. They're not infallible. Um, they, too, need to be judged according to the scriptures. But insofar as they were enthralled with God and enthralled with understanding God in and through his word, and insofar as they were incredibly skillful in reading the whole of the scriptures together, they continue to be uh, very valuable. And, and just last comment and Feel free to, to ask any follow-up to my answer on this. Uh, as they are helpful in understanding the nature of our salvation, they're also very helpful, I think, in helping us understand the life of salvation, the Christian life going out and how we understand, understand that, especially um, as, as they lived in a particular culture and we live in a particular culture, hearing conceptions of the Christian life, which maybe sometimes are, are very different from the culture in which we live in, uh, help us ask the question of how am I conceiving of the Christian life, which is more informed by American 21st century Western Christianity, 
and how much of it is informed uh, theologically by who God is, how he has saved us in Christ. So there, there's, I don't know if that was five minutes. I tried to ramble for five minutes, Tommy. It was excellent. A ramble with four distinct points, climactically articulated. <laughs> I'm sure Tommy's going to now uh, share all of this wonderful uh, knowledge there and inspire his young girls now to uh, to read the church fathers now as well. I'll tell you, I, I loved your answers, and, and, and it really makes me want to go back and uh, reread the, the church fathers as well. So thanks for sharing that, uh, Blair. I have to say also, uh, your answer earlier about reading the primary sources, I loved it. And not only was I, I'm, I am with you, uh, if I understood it right, you're reading them in their original writings, in the original uh, Greek Latin text. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, That's awesome. I, yeah. That, well, first of all, I had to do that in order to pass, you know, doing a PhD. But um, well, yeah, don't, don't don't minimize it. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what's interesting about that, Peter, is uh, every everyone that goes to seminary and does an MDiv and they take Koine Greek, they're like, oh, I know Greek now. I can read Greek. No. <laughs> um, as soon as I got into my THM and I became interested in reading the fathers, in particular the Cappadocian fathers, these were highly, highly sophisticated theologians. And they were seeking to converse in a very highly educated context in uh, the fourth century. I mean, these are two men from Cappadocia, but were from very elite families who, when in particular Gregor Nazianzus in Basel went to college, the equivalent college in Athens, uh, they went there with Julian, who became known to history as Julian the Apostate. So they were friends with the future emperor. They were swimming in these very uh, elite social circles. And as they were articulating their theology and in their writings, they were seeking to do so in a very high register, rhetorically, and in the literature they were producing, which meant they were they were retrieving a lot of classical modes of, of communication in Greek, which meant in order to read them well, you needed, you needed to have a background and a richer um, Greek than the Koine common Greek that's given to us in the scriptures. So that was quite demanding. And then Latin, I have a chapter in my dissertation on Hillary who, who wrote in Latin. And uh, since my dissertation and, and surrounding before and after, I've had a long-term interest in uh, Augustine, and I teach a class here in Charlotte and Augustine. Of course, he, read, he wrote in Latin, so some skill in Latin is necessary to, to engage um, the, 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 the Western fathers as well. It, it, it's probably, you know, I think you could possibly make a case for Latin as a third well, a fourth required language in the seminary curriculum, in addition to Aramaic, which, you know, we OT guys are still fighting for out there for our <laughs> lives. Uh, as well, much as a little advertisement for uh, Latin, we uh, I've started teaching it here in Charlotte. I, I will next fall teach Latin one and in the spring teach Latin two so that our students can having a taste for reading uh, some of the church fathers themselves. Oh, I think, oh boy, I think that's great. I would love to keep talking about this. We're trying to, you know, even consider offering like intro uh, Dutch over there with, uh, with Gray. Uh, and as uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting mildly digressing here with my interest <laughs> in language and, and, and uh, interacting with guys who are so educated in it. But I, I have a question, I guess, is um, 
and it's not so much a, a patristics question regarding the fatherhood of God is, is it a scriptural one? Mm -hmm. uh, generally, uh, in, in dialogue with people in the context of the church, when we think of the fatherhood of God, that tends to be more associated with the New Testament. Uh, I, I'm wondering, I was wondering what you thought of that and uh, if you had any thoughts of what the Old Testament has to say uh, about the fatherhood of God. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, there's an explosion, as anyone knows, sort of references to father and fatherhood in the New Testament that comes with the New Testament. And that's in the nature of progressive revelation, I think, with uh, the sending of the son and the son's own reference to, to his father. And then the communication of the doctrine of adoption uh, that is given to us through, through Paul and through, throughout the New Testament. But you're raising the question, you know, what, what of the Old Testament? Is there anything of the fatherhood of God there? Yes, but faintly so, I think. But it is interesting to think about where fatherhood does show up and why it shows up. And it seems to me that when God as father shows up in the Old Testament, it is in a broad sort of covenantal context. And and that's very helpful because I think the way we are understand to understand our salvation covenantally in the New Testament in the doctrine of adoption has a covenantal context to it as well. So back to the Old Testament, some of the texts that jumped to mind where God is mentioned as a father, are Jeremiah 31, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, uh, Exodus, and uh, late in Isaiah 63, 64, 65, I think around in that area. And these references they kind of go along two interrelated tracks, it seems to me. One is, um, and, and this is maybe the most clear and focused, is in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, it's reference to the king, right? So as, as in the Davidic covenant, as, as God is making covenant with, with David and his heirs, those in his line, he says he is going to relate to the, the king as a father relates to his son. And that will communicate something of his love for the king, it also relates to covenantally to what will happen when the king goes awry <laughs> and how he will discipline the king. And there's relation here to covenantal representation of how the, the people will, in a sense, be related to God through the king. Other passages there have to do with God's relationship to Israel more generally. So God as a father to, to Israel, father to the people of Israel. And that has a covenantal context, of course, as well. So as God is covenanted to his people coming down from Abraham through Moses in this covenantal context, he sometimes, not all the time, not, not frequently within the Old Testament, but oftentimes is understood as a father. And of course, this brings in his, his love, his provision, his protection uh, for them. Once you get to the New Testament, all these references to God's uh, relationship to his people, relationship to the king, get focused in on through the king, Christ, um, who is the eternal son of God, but also the son of David. And so Christ is the fulfillment of, of the Davidic covenant. But as we understand the father's relationship to the people of God that you see glimpsed in these various covenantal passages in the Old Testament, those seem to get transferred into what we know of as the doctrine of adoption in many ways, where we are adopted into a family 
and we understand this now through the sending of the son that we are united with the son so that we are sons and daughters by grace even as this eternal son is a son by nature and so therefore we have all of these rights uh, but the center where all that doctrine of adoption pushes is in how we have communion and intimacy with God. I'm thinking here in particular of 2 Corinthians 6, where 2 Corinthians 6 makes reference to this common um, covenantal formula where God will be our God and we will be his people, which is you know, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament as an articulation of what is the heart of the covenantal promise. And it's, it's a beautiful articulation of the intimacy where we have, what we have with God. You know, J.F. Packer would often uh, talk about uh, covenant theology as a theology of personal pronouns, where God is our God and we are his people. But it seems to me that the intimacy of that is put forward a notch in Second uh, Corinthians 6, where it's not just that God is our God and we are his, his people. He is our father and we are his sons and daughters. And so the, the intimacy is now put in a familial context and, and it's increased there, but it's done in that, that covenantal context. So all these references that, and so far as they are there in the Old Testament, which are sort of in covenantal context are put in the New Testament, still in that covenantal context, but the added category there is adoption in our understanding of adoption, which we only have in increased clarity, I think, with the, with the sending of the Son in particular. So you, you have covenantal and um, covenantal concepts and the doctrine of adoption coming together all in order for us to better understand everything that God went through to redeem us, to reconcile us to himself, to what end that we might have this intimate relation with him where we can call upon him, he can hear us where he cares for us, where he protects us, and yes, he even disciplines us in order that we might be conformed to the image of his perfect son. Hmm. That's beautiful. I, I love that idea of uh, sort of that convergence of that familial aspect in the Old Testament and the royal aspect in terms of God as father to sons sort of converging in Christ and how we as believers in union with Christ can claim both. You know what? I'll tell you what would be fantastic, Blair, is I don't know if there's ever been something done in the area of like a biblical theology of the fatherhood of God, uh, but you sort of outlined a broad aspect of that and this sort of robust explosion in the New Testament it, it, as it starts to really bring that out. But, you know, hey, that could be a, a, a great project that uh, uh, to work on sometime after, um, after you finish whatever writing project you're working on now. Yeah, I've actually thought of that and talked to somebody about about doing that, uh, okay. kind of pivoting from the more academic work to uh, connecting who is who is God as Trinity and, and the fatherhood of there with what we see revealed in the Bible, then to salvation and Christian life. I do think there's a need for a book like that. Brilliant before minds. We on, before we move on to Blair's publishing future, you want to? I, I think that's a really interesting point of talking about how the, the sort of covenantal aspects of fatherhood and sonship move into the adoption doctrine that we find in Christianity. And it actually really is kind of an entryway, isn't it? Into this broader notion of sonship and Trinitarian theology. And anyway, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. It's kind of interesting that, you know, canonically 
Matthew introduces the New Testament with this major theme of sonship, right? And starts with the notion of Israel as son, Hosea 11.1, 1, but then applies it to Jesus coming out of Egypt. And then really presents Jesus as this true new eschatological Israel going into the waters, coming out. The father declares, you're my son, goes out into the wilderness. It's interesting. It's almost as if Matthew is you know, canonically introducing this explosion that we're talking about, right? Kind of, kind of setting the agenda for the New Testament, which is going to be unpacking this doctrine of the son. And the entryway is, in, is through Israel as son, and then blowing out this concept, you know, to really, it's, it's kind of larger prototypical reality, which is the fatherhood and the sonship and in, in, in the Trinity. And in a way, by the way, also gives a good argument for, I think, this idea of, a, of an eternal covenant of redemption, right? This idea yeah. that, we're, we're, you know, what was this all about, this Old Testament material? It was to help us understand these much larger, broader realities. And I think to add to that, Scott, you know, I, I didn't mention these, but if you think about where in the Gospels it seems that the writers are wanting to pull back the veil on Jesus, think of his, I think in particular, transfiguration and his baptism, mm-hmm. where we see the Father addressing the Son. It's, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, you know, to basically say, here is this eternal backdrop of my relation to this one you were knowing that is before you. It's a, it's a relation of eternal love. Yeah. I, 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 when I hear that, it's like, and this is, this is now my own, uh, this is my own exegesis or, or, or insight being plugged into the exegesis, but it's as if the Lord is saying, cause we've just had Matthew set the scene out of Egypt. I called my son, Hosea 11, one, which of course a lot of new Testament authors say, well, that shows or new Testament critics say that shows how the new testament authors are playing fast and loose with the old testament right because that's obviously about israel and yet matthew i think is showing no i know exactly what that's about yeah right and then you have jesus you have jesus emerging from the water and the father saying this you've been hearing all this talk about my son this is my son right and there's just really this kind of all of a sudden all redemptive historical focus focuses in on this moment of the father declaring his love for the son Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great, uh, Blair. And I think what I really appreciated is, um, you know, this, this communion bond aspect that we have with God as father and how uh, so much of what we're talking about here is heading towards that is sort of the telos. And, and if you really think about it, the eternal kingdom in consummated glory, that's essentially what we have. Something you mentioned earlier with such a great statement, you know, our justification is sort of punctiliar, our sanctification is progressive towards uh, a certain goal, but there's a point in time when we are no longer going to continue being sanctified because it'll be finished. But sonship is an identity we will always have and carry with us. That's that's great. I, I love that idea. I, I mean, most people don't realize it, but even Voss in his definition of biblical theology had a component where he saw a practical aspect of biblical theology, and he emphasized this idea of a communion bond with God uh, as being sort of the end product and 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 for uh, theology, whether it's systematic or biblical, to head towards that goal is is great. And I, I, I really thank you for that. That's just truly uh, fantastic. And what's beautiful about that, Peter, is it ties Genesis to Revelation because you know as we look at the original covenant with 
Adam, uh, what was a picture of that? Now we get the picture right before the loss of it, but it was, you know, God walking uh, in the garden uh, with, with Adam and Eve. This, uh, this idea of communion and walking with, which is what our first parents enjoyed and which they lost, but which we regain in the covenant. We, that's the picture of reality uh, in the future, eschatologically, it, that's our communion with God. But we understand it in this increased way of, by grace, being united with the Son so that we're sons and daughters. Amen. And also, you know, we had Mike Allen on earlier who just uh, published a commentary on Ephesians. You know, you systematic guys keep going into us, us biblical theology guys' areas. you got to stop that. I mean, what? how would you like it if we started writing on, the, on, on Trinity, huh? <laughs> Well, there's been some great biblical scholars writing on the Trinity. <laughs> we glean from you. Hopefully you glean from us. <laughs> Amen. Larry, to, to peel back the, the background to redemptive history once again, and we've talked a lot, a lot about, you know, covenantal categories and the soteriological and even eschatological payoffs to the fatherhood of God. You know, the recent retrieval of the eternal generation of the son, I think the main payoff of that was ontological, right? That there's no subordination within Trinity. There is no eternal subordination, certainly. Yeah. And so what would you say would be the metaphysical or ontological payoff to understanding and retrieving the fatherhood of God as you've done here? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I think with the... Uh... What's been so great about the retrieval of the doctrine of eternal generation, and this has been done on an academic level very well through um, many years at ETS, where there were these uh, Evangelical Theological Society, which is the annual academic meeting of a lot of evangelical scholars. Uh, some of our colleagues here at RTS, as well as beyond RTS, have had this ongoing consultation where, where papers have been given on eternal generation, and then these the fruit of this was a book called Retrieving Eternal Generation, uh, edited by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain. But there's been other work, you know, beyond that, is how is it that the early fathers, the, the classical Christian tradition more generally, and the Bible have all related the Father and the Son together? And it's been through, centrally, the doctrine of eternal generation. And as Scott, perceptively, uh, Scott Swain, who I know you had previously on this uh, podcast, is pretty... Uh, perceptively understood, you take away eternal generation from relating the father and the son, as some theologians have done, we are still forced to relate then, therefore, in that vacuum, the father and the son. And so in that vacuum, other categories have been introduced, like relations of authority and, and submission, uh, eternal subordination of the son, all these other categories then come in to relate the father and the son. And they all, in one way or another, become theologically problematic on the very note that you mentioned, Ray, is ontologically, whether intentionally or unintentionally, subordinate the Son uh, to the Father. Eternal generation is such a, a beautiful doctrine because it's true, it's biblical, <laughs> and, you know, so many of our uh, theological forebears have understood the richness of it because what it does is it both articulates the oneness and the distinction between the father and the son. And the fathers were very skillful in, in putting these two together, that uh, through eternal generation, we understand in one sense, if I could put it this, the eternal gift of the father uh, to the son, uh, generating him and, and giving to him the fullness of the divine nature, 
And then the son receiving the fullness of that divine nature. Uh, and here, the, the, the classical foundational text, well, I mean, there's many texts for uh, eternal generation, but the one that speaks to what I'm speaking to right now is, is in John 5, just John 5, just as the father has life in himself, so has he given to the son to have life in himself. So the, the father eternally generates the fullness of the divine nature and the son eternally receives that. So that in that picture right there, what you have is <clears throat> distinction. Uh, it's the father generating, the son who is generated, the father from no one, the son from the father. Uh, but at the same time as that distinctiveness, the fullness of equality, that the, that the nature that is eternally the father's is also eternally the son's through, through the eternal generation. And so as we get away from categories of adoption and salvation, which are economic categories, and now we're into more theological, ontological categories, as we give attention to the fatherhood of God in this category, it's very helpful for understanding how God is one and how God is three and how God can be three and one at the same time. And what that forces us to grapple with, I think, are questions of uh, eternal Trinitarian order, which sometimes make certain theologians, including um, T.F. Torrance, who I mentioned earlier, a little nervous. Like, how do you talk about eternal Trinitarian order in a way that doesn't glide or slide into subordinationism and still upholds the principles of Nicene Orthodoxy? I think uh, the Church Fathers give us the tools to do that through such doctrines as uh, eternal generation, but but many others. Is that is that what you're asking, um, Gray? That's exactly right. That's really helpful, Blair. And I think we do well to consider that ontological matters are not unnecessary. They're not hindrances to yeah. reading the biblical text. You know, I think oftentimes there's a suspicion uh, of ontology for the Bible or biblicism, but I think both go hand in hand. I think the Bible prompts us to think about these things ontologically. Yeah. Hey, Blair, thanks for being with us. Um, you're also a pastor in the PCA, and I was curious to know how your training, you know, you've studied in very diverse settings, and uh, overall your work has shaped your ministry, um, maybe your emphases or you know, sort of open-ended, but I think that would serve many of our listeners well, because they're seminary students aspiring to ministry. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I think one one way is that in everything I do um, as a pastor, now I, I, as Scott mentioned earlier, I served full-time as a pastor for, for almost eight years in the DC area. And um, so I was engaged in teaching there. I was engaged in pastoring, engaged in leading and worship, engaged in counseling, all, all the standard pastoral responsibilities. I've served part-time pastoral work uh, since then, uh, both in Indiana and presently in my own church. I don't have a formal title as pastor, but I, I help with pastoral responsibilities and, and education of the church. So in each of these contexts, I think my training in particular uh, with regard to, to who God is, God the Trinity, I am seeking to impress that upon the people, uh, to, to behold their God, to know God. Uh, to know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, in relation to the gospel as well. You know, sometimes I don't think our people 
a particularly understanding of how does the gospel relate to God. So in my teaching and preaching to relate uh, the categories of the gospel to the categories of the Trinity has been something that I have been greatly concerned with. But I also think, you know, your question about relating my training to my, my pastoral work, I think even in, in kind of more mundane ways like pastoral prayers, I have sought to do that, to, to, to shape my prayers in a way that's Trinitarian, um, to understand that who God is shapes everything from how we understand salvation to how we pray to how we understand the Christian life uh, as well. So in those very broad categories, I'm not getting, I guess, into the nitty gritty. I've, I've sought to take my training of who God is as Trinity and, and relate it to, to pastoral practice and even to bring up counseling. You know, uh, there's many aspects that can come up in a pastoral counseling context, but a lot of them do <laughs> converge on who, who are we as Christians and to impress upon people that who we are fundamentally in our deepest identity is found in Christ and is has an eternal context of being in the communion of the Trinity. To be able to anchor people in that, in the midst of all the vicissitudes of this life and all the varying identities that we pick up and drop off in the course of our lives, to be able to anchor people in God himself and in the gracious relation we have with God through the Son, I think in a counseling context, can, can be incredibly helpful. Yeah, so I, I'm sure I could add more, Paul. It's a, it's a great question and, and something I'm forced to continue to ask myself, you know, as I teach this uh, for a living, how, how is who God is connect to all of what I do as a professor and as, as a pastor is, is a good question to keep asking. But those are some of the things that jump to mind. Yeah, I think about that a lot because even in Jesus' final instructions to his disciples in john's gospel at least in one sense it's a crash course on the doctrine of god you know like where he talks a lot about the holy spirit and uh, it's it's one way of looking at the way he comforts his disciples is to open them up to the trinity so you know, i think there are a lot of practical applications here yeah paul uh, on that note in particular um I'm sure some of you on this call and Paul too have read Robert Lethem's book on the Trinity. Uh, somewhere in there, he talks about uh, an email exchange he had with Sinclair Ferguson. And I, I wonder if all of our email exchanges show up in books like Sinclair Ferguson's too. <laughs> but um, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, he, he, he's recalling an email he had with Sinclair Ferguson where, where Dr. Ferguson says, I've long meditated on the fact that just as Jesus is about to go the way of the cross and to face his death, the thing he wants to most impress upon his disciples is the Trinity. You know, and we know this common reality. Someone's dying. They want to share what's most important with those that are surrounding them. And for, so for Jesus, that's the Trinity. And so much of what we have in John 13 to 17 is a meditation in one sense or another on the Trinity and how the Trinity is relevant for the disciples that he's leaving behind. So as you suggest, the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit is of great import to what he's going to communicate because the Holy Spirit's ministry after Jesus departs. But John 17, as, as we have the high priestly prayer, you know, Jesus is praying to the Father that we would know 
the relation that he has eternally had with the Father, that we, his disciples, would know that same relationship. And so, as you mentioned, pastoral ministry, I mean, that, in one sense, that gives us a charge of what are we to take in our ministry? Well, to minister the Holy Spirit and to continue to remind people of who they are in Christ and what wealth they have in their relationship to with the Father and, and to be able to have them understand that more deeply. I love that. I love the, the fact of the richness of the divine character coming out in Trinitarian theology. Um, it's not a complicating factor. It's not like an ivory tower study of God that has no implication on our worship, but it reminds us of the richness and the beauty of the triune God and how a child can worship him and how grown adults can try to plumb his depths and never get to the bottom of it. Right. Mm -hmm. As we see in this kind of conversation, you think you understand what it means for God to be father. And then you realize it means so much more than you could have ever possibly imagined. Right. And you can gesture at it and uh, apply words to it. And yet it's inexhaustible. And it's just wonderful. Thank you so much, Blair, for being with us today to talk about this. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been been great. You guys ask great questions. And thanks, everybody else, for participating in this great conversation. Uh, it's been great to be with you and look forward to being again with you next week. Take care. That was great, Blair. That was fantastic. Really that rich. Was, that was oh. great, Blair. Thank you. B plus. B plus. <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. <laughs> Tommy <laughs> only gives A's to like the really stellar students. So just, right. just so you know. What do I need to go get an A, Tommy? How can um, I get better? A bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have to be Chad Van Dixhorn. Is that it? <laughs> right. That means even Jesus wouldn't get an A here. <laughs>